Being the holiday season, there are lights up everywhere. Shops are open early as well as late, and people in general are in good spirits. At some point along the way, each of us will pause and think of ways that we can give or give back. In the background of this joyous time, the real world still exists. One facet of this real world is hospitals. People still get hurt or sick, and they and their families spend time in these hospitals fighting their medical challenges and working hard to recover. Our guest today on the Dogger and Muddy Music Show truly give back. In fact, they kind of view themselves as servants to the patients they meet. Jim Newton and Larry Dykstra take their voices and guitars to hospitals all year round to play music for children fighting to get healthy. As we all know, hospitals are lonely, sterile, fearful, emotional places. Now put a young child there and it adds a whole other level of sentiment. Jim Newton has created a library of songs for children. He and the team from Kid Links deliver music for all types of situations that kids face when sick. Jim and Larry walk into hospital rooms with their priority to serve, not to entertain. Upon entering a room, they assess the situation within seconds. Based on their assessment, the objective of their song could be to bring a smile, help calm a nervous, tense child, maybe offer a break from the monotony of a hospital stay, could be to soothe, and oddly enough, maybe the answer to the situation they walk into is no song at all. The lyrics and music these two guys take with them into each hospital room are wonderful gifts for people in emotional need. They have a great story. So let's get them to slide up to the microphone so we can get this show on the road. Here we go. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? All right, here we are at the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Uh, Muddy just wandered around, finally got a comfortable seat. He's getting ready to hand uh, over the microphone to uh, Jim Newton and Larry Dykstra. Um, It's the holiday season, and uh, Larry Dykstra, a good friend of mine, has filled me in several times on... um, how he goes to hospitals and uh, sings for kids. Obviously, that is a great thing to do, and even more special during the holidays when sometimes kids are sitting there, hopefully not by themselves, but uh, I know they would rather be home celebrating the uh, season with their, with their family. So I'm, I'm here, and um, Jim Newton uh, helped found Kid Links. And they, uh, here's the organization that Larry Dykstra joined, and we're going to talk to both of them here. But I'm going to open it up and ask Jim to talk about Ken Links and talk about his background, how he started. Uh, he started at SMU Perkins and how he evolved into getting into the whole music thing and how his music helps kids all, all over the place. So with that, let me hand it over to Jim Newton and tell us about your background, Jim, and, and Kid Links. Thanks. I appreciate this opportunity. Kidlinks is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. And uh, way back in the dark ages, back in 1981, we started a celebration shop. Later, we became Hugworks, and then we merged with another nonprofit more recently and became Kidlinks. So, but uh, they're all 501c3 nonprofits. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I loved to sing. And I sang from the time I was in the second grade, probably in church choirs, you know, kids' choirs and stuff like that. And when I was in junior high, um, the choir director we had in junior high broke all of us up into barbershop quartets, and I learned to love harmony with barbershop quartet. And we did a few talent show uh, winnings and stuff back then, and it got me hooked on applause. I love instant gratification, you know, <laughs> which doesn't always happen, but when you're, when you're fortunate, it does anyway, and you get that applause. But uh, all during my growing up, I was living in a home that was very uh, into alcohol abuse and a lot of uh, very troublesome um, encounters with my dad. And, and mom was a classic enabler, and wow. it was a tough place to grow up. And so I had a lot of feelings stored up. And I found when I I'll sang, bet. 
I could deal with the feelings better. I could sing and I could cry. I could sing and I could laugh. And uh, so it really was a therapeutic thing for me from the beginning, just personally. Just a weird step. Were you you able to do that at home or did you have to kind of? No. Yeah. Actually, my, both my parents were very supportive when I started singing and playing in groups and stuff like that. They, they were, they always showed up and brought people and they wanted me to pull the guitar out and play at home, you know, when folks came over and stuff like that. So they were supportive, but, um, I don't think they really realized how therapeutic it was for me to just be expressing my feelings with music. And so, uh, later on when I had the opportunity, just, uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, this, um, couple who had lost a child to uh, cancer um, a couple years before that up in Columbus, Ohio, when I was doing a church youth weekend, excuse me, they uh, asked me if I'd go to the hospital and sing for kids. And I'd never really sung for kids much. I sung for youth, adults, adults, et cetera. But I went in because they asked me to go and I just fell in love with uh, uh, singing in the hospital with kids. I mean, it just, all of a sudden I thought, gosh, this has been so good for me. And these kids are responding. These parents are, you know, having a heavy sigh and looking more relaxed and they're clapping their hands or whatever, or they're, you know, they, they're emoting or whatever. And it's given them a, a positive way to express those feelings, just like it did for me. Yeah, and so fa- it was a natural, power natural place for me to be. So, you know, that's kind of the way it started. Yeah. And then, uh, so from there you formed Hugworks, right? Yeah. Which I, now is Kidlings, yeah, yeah, but yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, we just, I, I came back um, from that Ohio thing and I talked to my board of directors because I'd been doing primarily youth work and college campus ministry work. And I said, I really think that this is where I belong. I mean, I did all this training at Perkins School of Theology and pastoral care. I was a trained hospital chaplain, et cetera. And, but I, I wasn't using any of that. And I thought, gosh, maybe I can blend the music and what I understand about pastoral care together and and make a difference in the lives of kids and families. And they thought it was a great idea. So we slowly, over about three years, transitioned from doing primarily church stuff and college campus ministry to in hospitals. Fascinating. So, yeah. All right, let's, let's switch it over to Larry. Um, Larry, you came from the business world, and, uh, but you always had music kind of in the background. And uh, uh, you I think take us through your Pluto experience, maybe? Well, let me start with my <laughs> music background. Um, I, like a lot of baby boomers, I probably grew up in the rock and roll of the 60s and the 70s. And um, without formal training, but I, I think my training happened with the transistor radio that I was given as a Christmas present once. I'd sit on the front porch swing and sing along to the Rolling Stones, um, sing at the top of my lungs in the car. In fact, I still sing along with CDs in the car. It, it drives my wife when she's with me crazy. But but the people um, who pull up, up next to you, they like it. They yeah, like it. yeah, right. <laughs> um, so music was kind of that. And then in college, I started to pick up guitar and just kind of fiddled around with it for quite a while, um, never doing anything really... Um, formal with it, um, no groups, just kind of playing with a couple friends, um, playing for myself. Um, And then uh, in the business career, I actually evolved to, I think my core competency in music is leading sing-alongs. I I learned some of the, you know, 10, 15, 20 songs that um, Baby Boomers in particular, but others like to sing along with. And so doing that, and I was doing one of those at a corporate offsite. And at the end of it, a couple mothers that were there said, you know, we've got children in our on-site daycare center. You ought to go sing for them. So um, I couldn't think of a reason why not to. And so I started going down there about every other week for a little over a half hour and singing things like the ants go marching one by one and bingo. And I composed a song that had all of their um, names in it. Excuse me. And... um, got kind of hooked on that experience because the music mattered to them and um, and it kind of, they made me matter. They made me feel like kind of a star. But So I started playing for others and when I left the corporate world and you asked about the Pluto, I, um, about the same year that Pluto um, got devalued or demoted as a um, planet, I kind of felt the same thing was happening to me at the end of my career. So... Um, I kind of moved to an early retirement. It's, um, it's, that's probably best to leave it at that. But one of the things I was looking for as I was leaving the corporate career after 25 years was a place where I could do um, music because and replace that daycare center experience. I probably could have gotten back there, but I felt, given the circumstances, I probably needed to 
move on to a different place. And um, I started to um, audit a introduction to music therapy class at SMU. Um, and it was a lot of what I was believing about the value of music, the power of music was being kind of expanded and, and confirmed. But I also was realizing that music therapy was to do that was going to require um, two and a half years of going back to school and a certification. And in my 50s, I wasn't really ready to <clears throat> sign on for something like that. So I'd come to that conclusion and was wandering the halls of um, the, the classroom building one day, and I saw this poster that said, um, Hugworks, there's something like therapeutic music entertainment. There was going to be a workshop on a Friday afternoon. And it said, um, uh, you know, therapeutic music in pediatric settings. And I thought, well, that's kind of, I'm interested in children. That fits. And then it was said something like, make your music matter more. And I thought that was kind of at the essence of what I was seeking. Like, how do I find my, um, let my music, you know, make a difference. Um, and I remember going into the classroom on a Friday afternoon and my first image, um, were these two beautiful guild guitars, um, blonde maple guitars sitting on music stands. Um, and soon the, the, it, the uh, workshop was introduced, and one of the child life specialists, and we'll probably talk about child life a little bit, was sharing her perspective on the needs of children. Then she introduced Jim and his uh, writing and playing partner for many years, Paul G. Hill. Um, and they shared um, kind of their thinking behind the repertoire, how they're trying to find messages that kind of either um, address the need to, for kids to express themselves or to build their self-esteem or to celebrate their diversity and how they incorporate metaphors into their music. And so as they talked it through and as they played, I thought, that's something I think I, I could probably do. So to fast forward, um, I then at <clears throat> about three months later started shadowing Jim and Paul as they'd go to the hospitals. And I'd say, well, how do you do that? Why do you do that? And it um, really learned that it was a lot more than just doing music. There were some things you had to be very sensitive to in that clinical environment um, and with that population. And so that kind of brings us to where I am today. So for the past, I think, six or seven years, I've been volunteering and doing individual um, room visits as a Hugworks or Kidlinks volunteer, um, kind of benefiting from Jim and Paul's coaching and teaching uh, for me. So, the uh, you also wrote a book, and it's called Musical Hugs, and in you open uh, the opening story, which I think uh, we'll talk about here, and then maybe we'll come back to it at the end. But you had a gentleman come up to you. I, I believe he was an engineer mindset. <clears throat> And he asked you an interesting question, which, being a lover of music, I was just like kind of shocked. But yeah, the, and this happened probably five or so years before I, I met Jim. So just put in the right time frame. But okay, um, this, we had a uh, variety show at our church each year, and about a month before that, um, a matriarch in the church had passed away, and someone had written a poem in honor of her. And I um, put that poem with some revisions to music and sang that at the variety show. Um, and I felt, and this is one of the first times I probably performed in front of an audience like that. Um, my evolution was from singing in a car to singing in front <laughs> of others to singing for others. And I yeah. think, yeah. Um, so it went from kind of a personal thing to a more of a service um, mentality. But so we're kind of in the middle there. I was performing. And I felt good about the arrangement, the composition, the, um, the delivery of it. And a couple weeks later, a friend from church came up to me. I think we were at some party or something. He said, so that song you did the other night, it was, it was well done. But he says, I don't know why you do it. And I kind of said, what? And he said, um, music, why do, you, why do you do music? And I said, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. And he said, well, here. I'm a graphic artist, and so when I work on a piece of art that expresses me, um, I work it over, I make revisions, I you know, can make edits, um, and after that whole process, I have something that is complete and I can look at, I can hang on my wall. He said, but a song, once you sing it, it's kind of 
gone. It's never there. You can never recapture it. So I don't understand why you even do it. So it seemed to me like a pretty weird kind of question, too. I'm right there. Um, and, but it made me start to think about, you know, why do we um, do music? Why do, is, is it so important to many of our lives uh, when this gentleman, it just didn't connect with him? And so... Um, I wrote the book partly after some of the experiences because, and what I realized um, in writing the book was that was the answer to his question, why you do it, because I had these mental pictures that I kind of shared in Musical Hug and stories about the responses I saw to the music, and that became my answer to him about that's why I do music is because it helps others. Yeah. Um, well, let's slide it back over to Jim. Let's maybe follow up. You've touched on it a little bit, but let's follow up on that. Why? Maybe expand upon Larry's why you do music. Well, our, our mission, uh, most recently uh, revised for KidLinks, is linking kids to health and healing through music and media. And um, so there's just nothing quite like music in terms of, I, I consider it a highway of feelings or a highway to our feelings, highway to the soul. There's just something about that we can express with tones that we can't necessarily wrap up in words sometimes. And um, we have a song, for example, that we wrote uh, way back when called uh, The Frog Song. And it's, uh, I'm a little frog sitting on a log. Let me tell you how I feel. And then it asks the kids to express their feelings or whatever. And you can get kids to respond or adults, for that matter, to a song when if you said, how you feeling today? They'd clam up. They wouldn't even be able to think about how they feel. Absolutely. And so songs are just uh, kind of a magical way to uh, connect with people and, and for people to connect with their feelings and share those feelings with others. And, uh, and, and, and they're deeply embedded because there's been, I think, at least two films recently where they're visiting with Alzheimer's patients oh, in hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll put on a song. And I, I saw and this man, literally, he's been in a chair for months. Right. He gets up and starts dancing. Mm -hmm. And then another lady in a bed who hasn't moved, she starts singing. Right. Yeah, it, it, it takes people back to where they first knew the song or when they used to sing the song or hear the song on the radio or whatever, and all of a sudden it can just sort of cut through uh, whatever that block uh, that Alzheimer's is and dementia, that sort of thing, and uh, help folks respond when they wouldn't respond otherwise. It's I don't know. I wish I had... Um, maybe a better understanding of the brain like music therapists do. I'm not a, I'm not a board certified music therapist. I'm what we call a therapeutic music entertainer as is Larry and, uh, and Paul Hill. And, you know, we don't probably have the kind of brain knowledge that could tell you exactly <laughs> why music affects the brain the way it does, but I just know it does. And I've just watched so many times uh, I go into a hospital room and a kid and uh, parents are just, completely uh withdrawn and overwhelmed and you begin to play a song and you can see the shoulders relax you can you can hear them sometimes sigh you know and uh, parents who are so overwhelmed with emotion they're so worried about their child in there right. with a life-threatening illness or whatever they'll begin to tear up and sometimes outright cry and the music gives them permission to express what Very they good. need to express. And, you know, some people say, well, why do you like making people cry? It's not, I don't like making people cry. People have that pain and music gives them permission to express it. And if, if pain's not expressed, it's problematic. It's it, got to it come turns out into other stuff. It's got to come out some way. Yeah. Which you, unfortunately you, you somewhat know yes, from your absolutely family I background. Do because I was, by the time I got into college with all that I'd gone through at home with my kind of traumatic, I mean, I had a wonderful upbringing in some ways, in this little West Texas town out close to Lubbock, Texas, Brownfield was the name of it. But, you know, we kind of hid what was going on in the family. And it was just, by the time I got into college, I was depressed a lot. And between some counseling and expressing my feelings through music, I was able to connect with the best part of me and stop being so, um, you know, angry and so depressed and, and, you know, just was able to express feelings that I would have probably never been able to express otherwise. So, and every time I sing with kids now, I feel guilty sometimes because I'm still getting a lot out of it. My my little child, my little boy, Jim, that's in my heart and in my soul, uh, gets a little better every time I sing a song with a kid. Well, that kind of goes 
from personal memory, it goes back to like mission trips. Mm-hmm. People always say, well, you're there to help the people in the yeah, third world right. country. Yeah. But almost everybody who goes, when they come back, they say, well, in all honesty, it helped me a lot more than it, right. it helped them. Yeah, they don't, they don't say as you give, you receive, um, you know, for nothing. That's really true. I mean, right. matter of fact, I had a psychologist that was a good friend of mine one time tell me um, that uh, the brain is not able to understand the difference between an affirmation that we give someone else and one we give ourselves. In other words, every time you give someone an affirmation, you give them a stroke, you affirm them, you're affirming yourself. I mean, it's, it's as you give, you receive. It's just, it's a, it's a psychological thing as well as a spiritual thing or an emotional thing. And so, you know, giving is, is, uh, healthy. I mean, it helps us. It heals us too. Okay. You're walking up to a room. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you ask, you knock on the door, you ask to come in. Mm-hmm. Can you step through maybe one or two scenarios where you, now you walk in and you've got to assess what the heck's going on <laughs> and your, your, your portfolio of songs, which song is going to fit the best. Can, take us through your thinking. Well, on that. Let me just talk a little bit about that. And then I'm going to let Larry have, have a chance to share too, because he, yeah. he has his own yeah. set of experiences about this. But, um, I have a, a, another friend who's actually a real estate mentor of all things, uh, who talks about various levels of competence. And when you do something for a long time, you can become not just consciously competent, but you can become unconsciously competent where when you walk into a situation, you take in, you don't have to think, okay, what's the lighting like? Okay. What's, uh, is there food on the tray? You know, can I see food in the room or can the kid not eat anything right now? Um, you know, what's the mood of the room? Uh, what, what are the facial expressions look like? You just begin to automatically do that when you walk in without even really thinking about it. Unconsciously right. you assess the feeling. And then we have our songs broken down into various categories, you know, feeling, expression, self-esteem, relaxation, etc. And um, you begin to think or just feel maybe this would be okay. And you start, start playing and singing something. And sometimes you, you know, it really hits. Uh, and usually it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And I've stopped in the middle of a song and, and changed really? and gone into another song because it, I felt it, I didn't do a good assessment and it wasn't exactly right. But let me let Larry That's really true. I, I compliment you for your truth to yourself on that. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the core principles, and, and um, Jim called it therapeutic music entertainment, the, um, I'd put the entertainment in quotes. I mean, and the entertainment part is like we, we, we think music inherently has some, it needs to be a certain level of quality. And so working on the songs is important. But um, it, it, you can't go in with a performer mindset. Um, it has to be more of a servant mindset. Um, and... They're probably Jim probably has more stories um, than I, but you will see, you know, athletes or even musicians um, that'll go into the hospitals and it'll be about them for some public, you know, relations thing. Um, so, so one of the things you have to do once you enter the room and you have um, agreement to do the song, and we can talk about that part of the process, but. Um, is to pay close attention. So eye contact is important. Where you um, position yourself is important. And you have to read the signs of how is this child responding to the music. I've changed the tempo of songs um, in the middle. Something I thought uh, might be upbeat um, wasn't working. Um, And so... um, like Jim said, you know, the cues are there. He, he's done it for longer, so I'm probably more conscious, um, uh, what do you call competency, than unconscious at this point. But, but um, after introducing yourself and, and um, asking for the song, um, lighting's important, facial affect, who's there. Um, it, it becomes kind of, to me, it's the exciting part of, of it is coming in and trying to read the situation and then uh, offer the, the best song gift that you can to fit the need that you see there. And there have been cases where I've, um, I've put a child to sleep. That's kind of, um, I've, like Jim, it's, sometimes that's needed. And Absolutely. we've got some lullabies. There are some other songs around comfort that do that. Um, I've had the same experience Jim talked about where um, a mother... Um, the father was holding the child, like a, uh, maybe a one-year-old, and the, the daughter, or the wife, excuse me, um, was standing behind him. And 
And, and she was hiding her tears, but then she had to creep around and see the song. And like Jim said, sometimes those tears need to come out. And it's kind of hard to take because as a um, musician singing that song, sometimes it's easy to start to get emotional yourself. And so yeah. um, so trying to pack that away and, and finish the song. Um, you ma- you mentioned the- in your book a couple times that when you leave the room, sometimes you get overcome a little bit. Yeah, and... Um, I don't know how to, I mean, to be honest, not every song works for every child. Right. There are always going to be somewhere. And I think those are the ones that, that bother me the most, as much as I believe, and I truly believe in the power of music. Um, sometimes it isn't enough. Right. Um, They're going and, through and, some really tough stuff. And, so, I mean, and, yeah. Yeah. And so leaving and realizing, and, and I think I wrote about, you know, one day where I had three room visits in a row where um, it was just um, seeing, you know, these the least of these, these little children in very difficult physical situations. And it's not surprising that the music can't always get through to them. And so when you, you get a, a series of those, sometimes I have to stop and pause. But really, it's... Um, you have to. I, I kind of use the the analogy of like a football quarterback who threw an interception. You got a or a pitcher that th- um, throw, gives up a home run. You have to kind of say, okay, that was that. I'm going to package that away. I might reflect on it later, but um, I have another room to do, right. and I can't let that affect the next um, child and family I sing to. Yeah, so. one of the one of the stories you had, which was comes to mind, it, 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 having read your book, it, it pops back to me a lot. Is you're singing a story in the kid was very unresponsive very calm and but you were throwing a question at him all through the song and then at the end of the song you asked the final question and he said you're right it's a song it's the song is wouldn't it and it's a song of diversity and it kind of goes through um it's like wouldn't it be a shame if all the colors were the same if all the flavors were the same um i think paul hill wrote that right and if you think of it, it's, it's um, one of the, th- the great things about the Hugworks repertoire of songs um, is the use of metaphors that are accessible to children um, that they can associate with. And so there are, these are metaphors about the power of diversity. And so it's about, wouldn't it? And I was playing to a, a, a kid who wasn't making any facial contact. He didn't seem to be that excited about the song. He was accepting it. And so the song is, wouldn't it be a shame if we were all the same? Wouldn't it? And he then he looked at me and turned to me matter-of-factly and said, it sure would. And so he didn't look like he was engaged. And that's one of the things we're hoping for. You're hoping for positive affect and engagement in the songs. And he didn't seem to be engaged at all, but he was there every step of the way. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's uh, being... A- you say you're 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 being trying to serve, not be a performer. But yeah, you want that response, and then his response was kind of flat. But to me, having read it, I went, "Wow, the young man was there." Go ahead, right. go ahead, a lot Jim. Of, a lot of times, um, you know, uh, just like Larry was saying, you can't tell that it's really doing much or any good. And then occasionally, when we'll be in the hospital uh, most of a day or whatever, we'll we'll run into a a mom or a dad or maybe a nurse that's from one of the floors later and. And they'll say, you know, that kid has not stopped talking about your visit oh, that's all day cool. long. And, but you couldn't tell that at the time. It's planting seeds. You know, we're all planting seeds. Yeah. So, I have a story to share on that that involves Jim and Paul. I think he knows about this. But um, there's a child in the church uh, we attend, Doug, who um, has gone through a number of uh, uh, craniofacial surgeries, and Jim and Paul were singing to this family. So um, somehow we made the connection with this family that I work with Jim and Paul, or volunteer with their organization, and so they knew of Jim and Paul coming in and singing to their son. Well, um, to fast, so I knew about this, uh, and that that had happened. And I was at a um, church retreat, and we were talking about, somebody raised the question in an adult discussion about, you know, when you're serving others, how do you really know that you've done good or had an impact? And um, somebody suggested my book, Musical Hugs, had just come out. So they said, well, Larry can speak to that. And I kind of shared that, you know, the book really describes the, the really amazing things I've seen and some of the things like you asked about, Doug, where there didn't see a response. Um, but I said, there's a lot of them in the middle where you're just not sure you know, what happened. I, I, I view that as a matter of faith. And I, I said that at the time. And then um, mother, the mother of that child stood up and said, let me tell you a story. 
Whoa. And she said, you know what I described about the connection? She said, when Jim and Paul came into the room a couple years ago and sang for her son, um, the prior two days after his surgery, he had had to have his hand on one of his parents the whole time. Um, he was seeking the comfort of their presence. And he said, when Jim and Paul sang and they got into the first verse of the song, he moved his hand away from his mother's hand. So the song was providing the comfort that um, only his parents could provide before. And so she said, it's like, you know, and you think about it, that'd be something that Jim and Paul might have noticed that the hand moved away, but they don't understand. We don't understand the significance of some of those yeah. things. And so like Jim said, you hear about them later, but um, like I said, I think I take it as a matter of faith that the music is going to make a difference, whether I get to see that impact or not personally. Yeah. yeah. That's really true. And I, I, you can't underscore enough what Larry's brought up about um, the fact that it, it can't be about us. I mean, you, you have to, in order to do a good job, we have to go in and consciously say, uh, okay, no matter what, what I'm worried about today, no matter what's on my mind or whatever, I've got to, in some sense, empty myself of all that and let it go for a while because I have to be able to totally take in what's going on in the room or in the group that we're with or whatever uh, in order to really be of any help. And, uh, you know, I, I don't always do a great job at this, but it also helps um, to get plenty of sleep, to um, try to work out whatever, uh, you know, uh, tough things are happening in your life at the time and make sure that you're in a place when you go that you can be available, you know, that you can do what you need to do in order to, to uh, focus in on their needs. Uh, you were asking, Doug, about kind of the process, and I want to point out another thing, which I learned from Jim. I would have not um, realized um, if I would have just started going to hospitals. But it gets to the um, not about me versus it's about the, the child and the family. The, a common scenario is after you introduce yourself and say, you know, we get references from child life specialists about kids that might uh, benefit from a song. But a common scenario is you'll see a parent or grandparent there who's bored and they'll go, oh, here's a guitar. And the child may be kind of looking skeptical and shaking their head. And the, the parent's going, yes, yeah, let's, you want a song, don't you? And that's probably the hardest call to make because sometimes you don't want to push it, but you want to give time for that discussion to happen a little bit. But... And Jim taught me this. It's like if, if, it's, if, it's, if I conclude that it's probably not the child is not interested in having a song at that time, um, the line is something like, you know, he doesn't get to say or she doesn't get to say no to much here or anything here. So their ability to decline my offer of a song is probably as good a gift as the song itself. And so that's kind of the servant mentality, not the performer mentality that has to kind of be a theme that comes throughout all the work we do. So. Yeah. yeah one, one thing fascinating about stepping back to the young man from uh, your church that uh, you sang to and got relaxed with his, with his mom and could let go. He's, he's now a giver because I love the story. Um, there's another, an older gentleman in the church, not related to this young man, yeah. who has a lot of health issues, and he goes in and out of the hospital every once in a while. Well, your young man has a cape that I believe he takes with him when he goes to the hospital for his, his work, and he delivered his cape to this older gentleman to help him get through one of his surgeries, mm -hmm. and it's just beautiful. Yeah. Jim, you were going to add something. Yeah, I was going to add something. Um, years and years ago, uh, we were up at uh, Lytta Children's Hospital, which is at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, oh, yeah. and uh, we were going around doing room visits, and uh, there was a, oh, I guess he was probably 10 years old or so, a young boy that had been through a lot of cancer treatments up there. He and his mom were in the room, and exactly what Larry just mentioned happened, and that was mom decided that it would be a great idea to have a song, but the kid was just not interested. And against my, uh, my better judgment and, and what, what uh, I shared with Larry, I decided, well, I'll try it anyway, even though he doesn't seem very interested. And we started into the song. We were singing, I Can Be the Best I Can Be. And we got maybe, a, oh, I don't know, six or eight words into the song, and the kid screams, no! Wow. And I, we stopped. And he looked at us with this little kind of wry smile on his face, and we kind of smiled at him, and the mother looked, looked just 
exasperated, like she, you know, he just offended us or whatever. And then he, then he said, go. And we started playing again. It took us 10 minutes to get through the two and a half minute song, but he kept going, no, yes, or stop, go. I forget exactly, but he was in control. He, he would give us the cue and he was in control. And the mother apologized and apologized. When we got done with the song. I said, ma'am, it is no problem. You know, we came here for him and he got to control something when he doesn't get to control much. I mean, that, that is truly, as Larry said, the gift that we're looking for. We're trying to help kids feel empowered, feel connected with who they are and feel comfortable. And, uh, you know, it, and music can help do that. So, uh, he, yeah, he, the song became his at that point in time, really which is really did. cool. And, you know, Larry mentioned just a minute ago uh, a segue that I think we ought to make, and that is to thank our child life specialist friends around the country and around the world. Because when uh, Paul Hill and I first started uh, singing in kids' hospitals way back in 1983, um, we didn't know what we were doing. And we'd seen lots of different projects that churches had done and nonprofits had done where somebody has a real good idea and they, they really want to help but they don't really go ask what's needed they just go back into their little closet or room and they decide here's what it is and they and they'll put a lot of work into some like a lot of money sometimes or whatever and the project misses the mark because they didn't really ask the people who really know what's needed and so from the yeah. very beginning we met these wonderful people called child life specialists and all the children's hospitals and pediatric units around the country virtually all of them have at least one if not uh, a dozen or more child life specialists and they really understand early childhood development, and they understand how to let us know, which they did, what kind of needs the kid have, kids have, and therefore what kind of messages might be helpful to them. And that's what we used to write our songs and to gather songs that other people had written that would fit, that would be certain messages the kids need to have. And without that guidance, we would have been twisting in the wind trying to figure out or, or having to do it for 30 years before we finally figured out what was really going on there. And the child life specialists have been our wonderful guides and still are. We still have a review team that reviews every single song that we write before we put it up on Hugworks Children. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. You're, uh, this is probably a challenging question, but Mm -hmm. take us through your process when you're going to write a song, maybe why you pick the chords you do and (laughs) just some of the thinking behind the song you 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 talk about the the lesson that you work through through the lyrics and etc but take us through your thinking process on the song well this is where i wish our our colleague paul g hill uh was here because he's a lot more of a truly professional songwriter than i am um you know Basically, I'll just come up with a feeling that's connected maybe to an experience with a kid or with um, some kind of a, something a child life specialist said or a parent said in a room where we were that'll just give me a little germ of an idea. And, um, and I'll begin to work on it. And it might happen real quickly. It might happen in 30 minutes or an hour, but it's more likely to take a year or whatever before the song's done. And sometimes they don't ever even get done. So I'm kind of haphazard about the way I do it. And I'm, I'm a, truly a folk musician. I don't read music. Um, uh, Paul Hill has a degree in theory and composition from SMU. And so he really understands chord progressions and he understands music theory, theory and stuff like that. And so, um, a lot of times I'll write a song or have one mostly written and I'll share it with Paul and he'll go, you know, if you went to an F sharp minor there, instead of that other chord you just did, it might, might work better. And sure enough, it does. But there are also times when he'll tell me occasionally, not very often that we'll be working on a song together. And he'll say, you know, that, that bridge part that you imagined shouldn't work musically because it, it goes against some of the rules that I was taught in theory and composition, but it works. And so we ought to keep it that way. Right. Doesn't happen very often, but occasionally. But we've been a good partnership because, um, you know, we we basically come at it from two different, you know, perspectives. Just the total inspiration on my part, and he's got that inspiration, but he's also got the training behind it. So, being a child of the '60s, there's lots of songs back then that break <laughs> all the rules, but they work really, really well. Yeah, that's but right. We're, we're yeah. I'm sliding out out of our interview here. Um, I got a two-part question here. You're getting ready to play a song for us, but first off, I want you to talk about the beautiful guild guitar you've got here. Tell well, me, tell me a little bit about it. Since Larry introduced the guild stuff later, and he has guilds himself, let me let him ah, respond okay. to this one. Well, that's not my guitar, Jim. But but um, 
Well, I'll, I'll say a little bit. I mean, Guild, I've, I've got to come up with the right analogy, but it's probably one of the best guitar brands that, that is not well known and has been around for a long time. It's been through a lot of transitions over the years. But Jim, and, Jim has um, two, but he plays his 12-string, which is, um, I wish the listeners could have a chance to carry this thing. It weighs probably a ton. I've never seen a heavier or felt a heavier guitar. But, Interesting. But it's, a, uh, it's, it's, it's quite well put together. From the 70s, maple, big jumbo body, 12-string. Um, Jim calls it Brunhilde. He'll have to share that story about it. But it's a beautiful instrument. And... Um, it just, just by, And it was by coincidence. That was the other thing about when I first saw them. I mentioned going into that classroom and seeing those two guilds. I went, wow, I love my guild. And there's, you know, so I already had something in common with them when I, before they started talking and playing. But well, And one thing is uh, reading about music incessantly like I do. Uh, guild 12 strings do hold a special place. You'll see mm-hmm. a lot of the top tier artists with a right. guild 12 string. If they pick up a, an acoustic 12 string, a lot of times it'll be a guild. And that's not a, that's not a uh, uh, surprise to those of us who know them. Yeah. One example, Justin Hayward on the, the song Question, the Moody Blues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, he plays that on a Guild 12-string. It's got an um, open tuning, but it's, it's quite an um, instrument. So yeah, Guilds and Guild 12-strings have a special place in, in music history, for sure. Well, he mentioned that I named my 12-string Brunhilde, <laughs> and there's really not any story behind it in terms of why I picked that name. It just felt right to me, and so I decided... You ought to name a guitar uh, since it's such a personal good friend. And so the day that I brought it home, uh, I uh, named named her Brunhilde. And uh, the the inspiration for not for the name, but for naming a guitar was really um, uh, John Denver. And uh, he was a, always a hero of mine. And it was very inspirational to me as I was growing up and becoming a musician and everything. And and his song, This Old Guitar, taught me to sing a love song. Um, I just felt like um, that it was right to give, uh, you know, a personality basically uh, to the guitar by naming it. And uh, she's been such a good friend to me. As Larry said, I, I got her in 1977. And the day that I came home, uh, I wrote a song for her, so called Wooden Tune, which is really not a kid's tune at all. But that's maybe for another show. Sometime. Another but show, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But. Yeah, John Denver, I believe, is from Fort Worth originally. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The um, mm-hmm. you're getting ready to sing a song for us. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the song, and uh, yeah, just tell us about the song and lead, lead, leading into it. Well, uh, back when we were first getting serious about really doing something for kids in hospitals, as far as recording some of the songs we were writing and others that we were finding from other artists that would provide the messages they need to hear, uh, we decided uh, that we needed to have uh, a name artist. Uh, to kind of get attention of people, both funders and just people in the hospitals and whatever. And we had an opportunity to uh, do a little uh, uh, musical program for a patrons group after uh, a concert by Noel Paul Stuckey. And at that time, he was the Paul of Peter, Paul, Mary. But he had a, a contemporary Christian group called the Body Works Band at the time. And they were playing at a little church over in East Texas. And so I sang at the patrons reception in the corner and um, when he came over and said, gosh, uh, everybody's about gone now and nobody paid much attention because they came to see me and the band or whatever, but your music was real good. I'm sorry you got ignored. And I said, don't worry about it. I only came to get your attention. I think you're the producer of this hospitalized kids project, blah, 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 blah. And he was like a deer in the headlights. And I said, all I'm looking for is, uh, you know, just an hour of your time anytime in the next six months and I'll come anywhere to meet you and I'll share with you about the project. If you want to do it, great. If you don't. Uh, that's fine too. But so anyway, he granted me the hour and, uh, he decided he would become our producer. And so, um, when Paul Hill, I'm getting around to the inside song now, finally, (laughs) when Paul Hill, uh, decided to get the idea to write the inside song about using, you know, um, well, you'll hear you use, uh, metaphors for, uh, you know, how you have to know what's inside things in order to really experience them or, or enjoy them. And uh, just like people. And uh, he had written most of this song and he sent it to Stuckey when we were first getting ready to go in the studio. And Stuckey said, 
I want to help finish writing this song, which was wonderful. Paul was just floored to hear Paul, Peter, Paul, and Mary wanted to write the song yeah. with him. Yeah. And so uh, uh, Stuckey helped with, uh, I think, the third verse and a little bit of it. But it was mainly Paul's song that Stuckey kind of helped a little bit with. But... Um, you know, the song is such a great song, and it's probably one of the two songs that I would say are really the core message that we try to provide for kids and for adults and for pros that work with them, for that matter. And that is that it's what's on inside that makes a difference. And um, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary liked the song so much that when Noel introduced it, Noel Paul introduced it to them. They decided to put it on their Peter, Paul, and Mommy 2 album, and that album got nominated for a Grammy. So the song you're about to hear Larry and me do, uh, Inside, uh, was uh, on a Grammy-nominated album, which is real cool. So Paul Hill is a Grammy-nominated artist, so pretty cool thing, but it's a great song. I love it. All right, well, I'll let you set up, and then we'll play Inside. Okay. All right. say you're at this pie contest and let's say that you're the judge and there's lemon and lime and watermelon rind one that looks like fudge you can't tell which pie tastes best if you only eat the crust in order to complete the test bite of filling is a must a bite of filling is a must inside inside that's the most important part inside Inside, that's the place you got to start. Inside, inside, that's where you find the heart of the matter. Let's say you're at this birthday party, and let's say you just turned two. Woo! There are presents everywhere. Everyone for you. You can't tell which gift you like the best just by looking at the bow. Pick one out from all the rest Unwrap each present And you'll know Inside, inside That's the most important part Inside, inside That's the place you got to start Inside, inside That's where you find the heart Of the matter Let's say you're at the slide stacks on top of stacks why everywhere you look there's stories about mystery and sports and famous lovers to pick the one that you like best you gotta open up the covers open up the covers inside inside that's the most important part inside inside that's the place you got to start inside inside that's where you find the heart of the matter and you know children are the very best each one a joy and pride just how we know i'll bet you guessed we took the time to look inside inside that's the most important part inside inside that's the place you got to start inside inside that's where you'll find the heart where you'll find the heart where you'll find the heart of the matter that was great thank you very very much um also, uh, just so, so we didn't mention this before, uh, Larry was playing the mandolin during that song. So, uh, what kind of mandolin was it? It's um, a Marwin Super. I, I I picked it up at a, a used. It's uh, from the 1930s. I still haven't been able. Uh, I haven't done a lot of research, but figure out its background. I thought when the, I called the music store, asked if they had a, a used mandolin, they said, because um, I wanted to learn, um, they said, we have this Marwin Super. I said, Martin Super? Because Martin made mandolins in yeah, the yeah. 30s. And they said, no, Marwin. And um, there's a stenciled paint on the neck or the headstock that says Marwin. The only thing I can figure out is Kay made mandolins in the 30s. And um, 
I think um, there were a lot of department stores in small, medium-sized towns that had music departments. And so I'm imagining there's in Lincoln, Nebraska or somewhere, there was Marwin (laughs) Department Store that sold Marwin. So it's probably a K. Um, Very good. It's got a very nice sound. Um, and it's, it's easily playable. And so it's, um, there aren't many Marwin supers around. I know that. So well, one, one story Larry, you told me or, or, or a couple of years ago when you got to sit in when everybody with Paul Stuckey was there as well and uh, recording some songs and you mentioned his hands. They're a, a tad large. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's folk singers get a bad rap for not being really good musicians. Sometimes, I was amazed. Well, first of all, when I met him, um, he was doing a couple concerts uh, to support Kidlink slash Hugworks, and we picked them up. Jim let me come along for the ride, and uh, I'm going to tell a little story here. But we had he was playing the first night in Houston at a little Irish pub, and. Um, when I first met him, I was amazed at how big he is and his, you know, vivid blue eyes and just how welcoming he was, you know, to me is like, I'm thinking here, I'm going to meet a star and he was just a normal guy. But um, there was a, v- the, the agenda was, there was a VIP um, session for um, some ticket purchasers from six to seven. And um, that was after the sound check. And then from seven to eight, um, was Noel had downtime to do whatever he wanted. So I was tasked with selling, uh, and the concert was going to start at 8, so I was tasked with selling CDs of Noel's um, right outside this library slash green room slash wine cellar. And um, at 7 o'clock came around, and the last guest left, and the doors closed, and I expected Noel to take a nap or to meditate or do something to center himself. And through these black-veiled curtains... I saw Noel pick up a guitar and played, practiced for the next 50 minutes. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. This is a man that's played in front of some of the largest audiences, largest stages, a folk icon, a music icon, um, doing a benefit concert. And he's in his 70s and he's got free time to do anything he wants and he's practicing because it was a new song and he had to get it right. And I think that tells you why they're there, why they're there. Yes. And tells you a lot about, um, you know, because if you, as soon as you start coasting, you're going downhill. And so, um, but, but he's got these huge hands and his technique on the guitar is just amazing to watch. It's like, I was going back to what I, where I started. Like we think music our folk musicians. They just play, you know, the three chords and strum, but he is an excellent, excellent guitarist. Well, one of the things that was fascinating, but the large hands was you'd be watching him, I believe you said, and, and you'd, It'd be you'd have to somebody would have to tell you what the hell he, heck he was playing, right? Because he's like his hands are so spread out. Oh, that's a F sharp with a ninth. Yeah, yeah he's um, he's not. Yeah, he's not playing your basic, you know, G major, C major, D. He's he was playing some pretty um, unique chords. Um, he's quite quite a brilliant musician. So. Cool. Yes, it's probably uh, kind of like uh, jazz chords, if you will, which tend to be a lot more complex. than, yeah. than folk or you know, uh, rock or uh, rock and roll chords that people play. It's not a little three-chord song or a four-chord song or whatever. He's doing all sorts of extra stuff, and he just spends hours and hours and hours working those things out. And it's not very easy either to play on a nylon string guitar like he does. No. Because, you know, steel string guitars don't don't move. Uh, the strings don't move as much. And uh, nylon strings are so easy to hit one and sort of slide it this way or that. And how he plays the complex stuff that he plays, finger picking and and or strumming with those chords, I, I just don't understand. But he's just he it's magic when he does it. Now, not everybody can go to a hospital room and listen to you play. I mean, hey, we're no. going to play for Jimmy this afternoon, so everybody show up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't work that <laughs> way. doesn't work that way. But they, they can get a hold of your music. And, yes, and, absolutely. We have an online presence now and have had for about, I guess, a year and a half now or so, and it's called Hugworks Children's Network. And uh, all you have to do is go to hugworkschildrensnetwork.com and you can stream all of our songs and animations, some videos we've done, everything free of charge, 24-7. It doesn't cost a thing to do it. 
and we're trying to provide that service or are providing that services to service to kids and families and uh, to music therapists, to child life specialists, to other professionals that work with kids, to teachers and schools uh, so that we can uh, let them know about uh, our songs so that they can use them in what they do, or they can listen to them, or they can look, ha- have a young kid watch an animation that's got the inside song as the, the basis of it. So they get that message over and over again. And, um, anyway, hugworkschildrensnetwork.com, please tell everybody who might have an interest in therapeutic music for kids. Uh, and we even have a, a um, channel we call it on there for music therapists now where we have two board certified music therapists gina glidewell and cora lansdowne who work for us at kidlinks and they see about 12 kids a week um in you know in-depth music therapy they're full board certified music therapists and uh they uh, will write a song that has a ther- truly deep therapeutic use for it or whatever that another music therapist might uh, like to use and we'll record that and put it up on Hogwarts Children's Network in the music therapy channel part of the of the site so you can actually go to that uh, and check it out too and they, there's some things for families that want to know more about music therapy on there and some things for pros as well great and then the other option I guess you, you you've also got it up on iTunes as well right yeah we do we we really don't uh, you know promote things much anymore in terms of selling things and uh we were sort of of the cd generation and before that of the cassette tape generation before that of the of the lp album generation so um you know everything's on the internet now and so that our our main presence is hugworkschildrensnetwork.com yeah having the temperament to do what you all do is uh, not everybody has that a lot of people can play guitar and etc uh, and not as many can play it as well as you you guys can but still you got to have the right temperament the right attitude going in yeah i i think i was programmed to do something like this um by my grandmother you know uh, my grandmother is a very unique lady she was a first grade teacher in a little bitty town called rosebud texas for about 40 years and um she was the dearest heart and uh from the time i can remember being conscious enough to remember what my grammy was saying and by the way her name was ivy ivy raspberry who lived in rosebud texas so i like uh, that. you know she survived that name so she must have been really special and lived to be 93 too as a matter of fact <laughs> but she was uh, a real blessing for me and from the time i'm old enough to was old enough to remember she would say in several different ways over and over, Jim, you know, you are so smart and you're such a, a good boy. And I know that no matter what you do in this world, you're going to make this world a better place. I just know that. How could I do anything else? I mean, I had to find some way to do what my grandmother told me uh, was who I was. And so I truly believe that that's a seed that was planted in me for mission, for ministry, for caring. Um, that she lived out and, and I caught it. I caught the bug, you know, so. Yeah. I think you all have answered, uh, that question that, we, that you were challenged with by that graphic artist earlier is why do you do this? I mean, I think you all have answered that very, very well. Where does, uh, in closing, where does kid links and where do each of you all go from here? Well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And, uh, as long as we can, I'm not one of these people who's, uh, looking for the retirement gate anytime soon. And hopefully as long as I can uh, function and do it well, uh, I want to keep singing with kids uh, person to person and also want to continue to ride and collaborate with Paul Hill, Noel Paul Stuckey, Larry Dykstra, other uh, composers and writers and and performers uh, in trying to get as much as we can up on the web so that kids anywhere in the world can uh, hear what we do and, and hopefully be uh, moved by it and and maybe a little healing will take place even through the screen and through the audio that they hear. Absolutely. Um, Larry? Um, yeah, I, I still plan to um, go back to the, the hospitals. It's Yeah, you're right. There are some things you see. I think you know, I've had friends I've talked to about, you know, coming and shadowing and, you know, some express interest and some say there's no way I can do that. Um, and you have to honor that. Um, I don't, th- I've found that it kind of surprises me that some of the things I see don't bother me as much as I would have thought in the abstract. Um, and maybe that's because by going there, um, it grounds me, first of all, um, because I see some of the pain in the world, um, pain that I haven't experienced with my family, children, or grandchildren. So um, I kind of feel that connection with humanity. Um, it's something I can do, um, and 
like I mentioned, you know, in my book, Musical Hugs, my goal was to provide people kind of a front row seat to seeing the amazing power of music. And um, how could I stop doing that? I mean, every, every time I visit, there's some other story I could tell or could write about. Um, and um, I just think there's something to be said for the power of showing up for others, particularly the least of these. And, um, and the least of these in this case are those little children that you know, are suffering and parents who are worrying in kind of lonely hospital rooms. So that's part of what I continue or will continue to do. The other thing I'm starting to look into is exploring ways to, um, we'll call it engagement. I mean, we're providing songs and we have an interaction, but I'm trying to explore ways to use either music or writing or other things to help ch- the children in hospitals tell their stories express their stories um, and engage them in that way. And whether that's through music or journaling or writing their stories or writing poems and maybe writing songs with them. So that's one thing I'm um, investigating and exploring. Yeah. I hope you'll be sure and, and let them know how they can get a hold of your book if they'd like to do that and also find your, your website because this guy's doing great work and it's a wonderful book and uh, he's doing some things on his own, not just with kid links to make a difference in this world through music. Yeah, my book is Musical Hugs. Thank you, Jim. Um, uh, Succeeding Through Serving One Song at a Time. It's really kind of my journey from the pluto experience that Doug kind of asked about, which I didn't go into, um, um, to kind of, you know, in a business world, it was all about success and winning and um, learning how to kind of develop a servant mentality is kind of what that book is about, my personal journey in there. Um, so that's available through Amazon. And um, my website is um, musicalhugs.com. So visit that. There's some information there, some blogs and, um, and ways to um, interact and um, have it create a dialogue with, with me and others. So. I love it. Um, this has been great. Uh, the gifts that you two have and that you share with people are just phenomenal. Uh, I want people out there to understand that they have gifts, though, too, right? Absolutely. They may may not be able to play a guitar, Mm -hmm. but they could maybe read a beautiful story to a young kid. Absolutely. Or to a loved one. And uh, this is the holiday season. So Mm -hmm. any closing comments? Well, I would just say, just to follow up on what you said, um, the volunteer departments at all the children's hospitals, or for that matter, the adult hospitals or whatever, always needing people to be sitters, to be readers, to to be people to visit with folks and uh, do various chores around the hospital that they can't afford to have the professionals do. And uh, as you give, you receive. You get a lot from that. And I hope people will, will take time to volunteer and, and to, to help out with that. And I wanted to close by thanking you for having Jim and I here. Um, I, I want to acknowledge, I think, the initiative you have here with these um, you know, broadcast or whatever we call them are podcast podcast. Yeah, it's right. wonderful. I, I appreciate your passion for music and I appreciate your willingness to kind of explore this kind of more, um, servant kind of aspect Absolutely. Of, of music. So uh, thank you for the time. Piece of cake. Piece yeah, of cake. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Doug. And, uh, I would just say in closing, uh, you can go to hugworkschildrensnetwork.com. I'm going to Hit that again because I want people to to go and uh, share that music with everyone because you can stream it free of charge 24-7, HugWorksChildrensNetwork.com. If you want to know more about our organization, www.thekidlinks.org, thekidlinks.org. You can find out more about it there. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess maybe I could sign off. uh, The last thing I would want to say is the same thing I do when we do a group of kids a lot of times, and that is, I hope you keep a song in your heart because you know it will always make a difference in how you feel and also how you heal. Have a great day. I love it. Thank you very much. Y'all have a great holiday. Bye. Thank you. I'm really impressed with the ongoing services that Jim Newton, Larry Dykstra, and the rest of the team at KidLinks delivers for children. If one of the children in my extended family has a hospital stay, I hope that Jim or Larry are available to drop by and add some musical warmth and healing. Their stories and actions clearly respond to the challenge Larry received from the graphic artist. Why do you do music? One of their comments that really touched me was that music gives people permission to express their emotions that are touched thanks to the song.
My holiday read is the book How Music Works by David Byrne. For those of you who don't recognize the name, he's the Scottish-born American musician that founded and was the principal songwriter for the new wave band Talking Heads. Since the closure of Talking Heads in 1991, David has remained very active, releasing solo albums and works with other musical artists, as well as writing books. In the preface to the book, David makes the following assertion, which I believe goes further in answering the challenge as to why, not just Larry, but we, the artist and the listener, do and love music. David said, How music works or doesn't work is determined not by what it is in isolation, but in large part by what surrounds it, where you hear it, and when you hear it. He went on to say, You can't touch music. It exists only at the moment that that it is being apprehended. And yet it can profoundly alter how we view the world and our place in it. Music can get us through difficult patches in our lives by changing not only how we feel about ourselves, but also how we feel about everything outside ourselves. It's powerful stuff. Until next time, remember, music is powerful stuff. Go to www.doggerandmuddy.com for more podcast interviews, blogs, photos, and information on the music scene. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Dogger and Muddy.